Lord, the giver of life, we ask that you would pour out your spirit now upon your church. Lord, that we would be filled with understanding, that you would illuminate the word of God as it is read and proclaimed. Lord, I pray that today we would come away more eager to know you, more eager to receive your love that you have um, given to us, you have um, bled for us, you have died for us, you have risen for us, and that we would know it more and more, Lord, we would experience it through faith and through every moment of our lives. So, Lord, help us today. Give us uh, attentiveness as we open your word. Lord, we need you. Minister to us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Some of you guys know that Laurie and I just experienced our 20th anniversary. Yeah. God's God's goodness to, uh, to me, let me tell you. Um, 20 years, um, and she's actually keeping the kids right now, so I can't embarrass her too much, but I am going to embarrass her just a little bit. She, uh, for our 20th anniversary, Laurie wrote me a love poem, and I want to share with you guys this morning the love poem, because it's going to relate to the message. Okay, we've been talking about God's Word, right? And sometimes people say God's Word is a love letter. Well, I've got a love poem, and I want to read it to you this morning. Okay, y'all ready? Now, she's in the nursery. That's on purpose. All right. All right. It's, it's, the title is Unbelievable. Okay? The title is Unbelievable, and here it is. Preheat the oven to 350 degrees, making sure the baking rack is in the middle of the oven. Prepare your cake pans by cutting out a piece of parchment or wax paper to line the bottom of the pan. Using a fine mesh strainer, sift together the cocoa, flour, sugar, baking soda, baking powder, and salt into a large bowl. Add the eggs, yolk, warm water, buttermilk, oil, and vanilla. Mix on low speed until smooth. About three minutes. Divide the batter evenly between the prepared pans. Bake the cakes for about 32 to 35 minutes. Do not overbake. Remove the pans from the oven and set the pans on a wire rack to cool for 15 minutes. Gently run a thin knife around the edge of the pans and unmold the cake. Removing the parchment paper liners from the bottom of the cakes, let them cool completely. Top sides up on a wire rack, trim the tops of the cake layers with a long serrated knife to make them level. Frost as desired. Isn't that amazing? Let's give it up. Give it up for that amazing poetry that my wife wrote for me. Isn't that awesome? You don't seem very impressed. 
You don't seem very impressed with my wife's lovely uh, love poetry that she wrote for me. The full title is Unbelievable Chocolate Cake. <laughs> That's the full title, Unbelievable Chocolate Cake. And in fact, this is, I'm sure you figured it out, not love poetry. What is it? It's a recipe. And you know what? If my wife wants to express her love to me, after 20 years of marriage, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> right? This is not the way to do it. Now, what could she do to express her love to me? Come on, y'all. Bake me a cake. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Amen. Why? Because this is not poetry. What is it? It's a recipe, right? And so <laughs> it's kind of humorous, but it's important to get the genre correct, right? It's important if you want to communicate your love or if you want to communicate anything, you've got to get the genre correct. Because if you took a poem, a love poem, let's say a sonnet, and you decided to cook it, could you do that? If you were looking at, at a poem and trying to figure out how much do I put into the pan, you would be confused, right? You would be lost. Uh, just like you were a little bit lost while I was reading this so-called love poetry. Now, what's the point? The point is we have to get the category of whatever it is that we're reading. We have to get the category right. You can't bake a love poem, and you can't recite a recipe. But both of these things, a recipe and a love poem, can be used to communicate what? Love. Right? Each one, the recipe and the poem, can be used to communicate love, or anything, else, or anything for that matter, right? Anger. Uh, you know, anything that we can think of, any human emotion. It could be used to communicate those things, but if you get them confused, then it brings about confusion. The question of the day today was, what is something hard to understand in the Bible? And I will submit to you today, if I have a thesis for my message today, it's this, that many of the things that we find hard to understand in the Bible is because we're basically reading a recipe as if it were a love poem. We get the genre wrong. So much of the time, we, we, we're reading something, and we're we reading it as if it were a, a story. But really, it's a list of laws. Or, or, or we're reading something as if it were a, 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 poet, a poem, a poetry, metaphorical, but it's actually history. Okay, and so as we open the Word of God, we have to make sure we don't make this mistake. We have to make sure that we read the Bible as it was written, in the genre that it was written. Does that make sense? And so what I want us to do is think about how these issues are nothing new. And as we read earlier in our opening scripture from 2 Peter, uh, this, is written, this is Peter's last letter that he wrote, his last sort of message to the church. And in the scripture, in 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, go ahead and open that up in front of you. I'd like you to have that uh, in front of you. 2 Peter chapter 3, 
And we're going to read these verses again, uh, 15 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 18. Raise your hand when you got it. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm seeing a couple of hands. All right, good. This is the word of God. And Peter writes, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, people were wondering, when is the Lord going to return? Uh, they were becoming impatient. And Peter is saying, there's still people that need to be saved. <laughs> okay? So count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Because God is still making room for more people to come into his kingdom. Okay, that's the background. That's the what? The sea, the context of this, of this uh, particular passage. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our brother, our beloved brother Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there, is some, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And do you see what Peter is saying here? He's saying, look, some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. And if you've ever attempted to read through Romans, for example, there are some difficult things to understand in there, aren't there? Second Corinthians, there's some, in Thessalonians, there's some things about the end times in there hard to understand. And so Peter is admitting that. He's saying, look, I know there's some things that are hard to understand. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he says that people who are ignorant and unstable will twist them to their own destruction. They will take a passage that's hard and they'll use that to, to, to do their own agenda, to kind of move their own, uh, to, to, to move their own agenda forward. And so Peter is saying, watch out for them. They twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And then he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He's saying, especially as you read the word of God, as you read the scripture, be careful. Right? He's saying, take care. You can't just read it. You can't just open it up and just blindly read it and pick a verse out. Remember the first sermon in this series where you just pick a, pick a verse out and just sort of say, okay, this is it? You will be led astray. God wants us to, to read with care his word. And part of that is understanding the category. What kind of writing is this? As we make observations, what kind of category is this? He continues, Peter continues here, and he says... Rather than being carried away with error, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And so he's saying, as you read the word, grow in the grace and the what? The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all of the scripture ultimately is about him. You know, it's what I said I needed yesterday when I heard that sermon. I needed to be reminded of my Savior. I needed to be reminded that it's all about Him, not about what I bring or what I don't bring, but it's about His provision. It's about His finished work. All right, that's a word right there. Now, 
when we are reading through the Bible and we find some parts of the Bible hard to understand, we need to, we need to uh, try to observe what is the category of writing that we're reading. What is the genre? Y'all know the word genre, right? What, and that basically just means what type of writing is it? Is it poetry? Is it a recipe? Uh, is it a genealogy? What is it? The, the Bible is, when we, when we pick up the Bible, I don't, here's mine, let me grab mine real quick. When we pick up the Bible and we just open it, it, it can kind of seem like it's all the same thing, right? Like it's probably all just a story. And so it's easy to not really understand what is the genre. And so what I want to do is um, expose you this morning to s- some of the common genres in the Bible. And I've actually got handouts that are on that back table. Luke, would you mind getting up and grabbing those handouts and pass them out to everybody? I hope I have enough copies. Um, might have to share with, a, with the person next to you, but I think I have enough. So this handout is what, is what you see before you. It's the same timeline of all the books of the Bible. And down in the corner, it has a list of the books in order that they are in the Bible. And they're listed according to genre. Okay, and I've listed five genres for you. Now, there are more than those five genres in the Bible. There are probably 20 genres in the Bible. But what we're going to focus on are just the, these five, these sort of basic five. And here they are. They're law. No one's surprised about that, right? The law. Narrative. What's a narrative? Story, right? A story. It could be history. Uh, history has the word story in it, right? Um, narrative. So you got law, narrative. Then we have poetry. There's, these books right here, right, are poetry books. And then we have, uh, after that, we have our prophets, which are down here. We got our prophets down here. And then the last category that we're going to talk about are letters. Okay, and so in the New Testament and the Old Testament, these genres are in both. You have all of these genres in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of the books are going to have multiple genres within them. Okay, so sometimes, and what's really helpful is in your your Bible, you're going to notice that sometimes it looks like poetry. They will actually, the editors of the Bible will actually put it in there so that it looks like poetry. If you turn to uh, anywhere in the Psalms, you'll see that it's spaced out like a poem. Okay, and that's to help us realize, oh, this is poetry. But you'll even find that sometimes in other chapters in the Bible. And we'll take a look at that in just a few minutes. So let's take a look at these genres. The first one we're going to look at this morning is law. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are together considered the law. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all law. There's actually a lot of narrative in those, four, in those five books. But overall, they're called law. And that's because in those books, there are over 600 individual laws listed. A, a, a traditional counting of those laws is that there are 613 laws in those first five books of the Bible. And so that's why we refer to this section as the law. Well, what is the law? What is it? The law is simply an expression of the character of God. 
A law is an expression of the character of God. And so in uh, Exodus chapter 20, we have uh, the listing of the Ten Commandments. You guys know the Ten Commandments, right? And the Ten Commandments are basically a, a listing of what we would call the moral law. This is the basic principle of what uh, reflects God's character. What is good? What is right? What is wrong? And the moral law is what tells us that. And the Ten Commandments are a brief summary of almost everything you need to know about what's right and what's wrong. Right? For example, you shall have no other gods before me. If your life is, if you're worshiping other gods, if you're chasing after uh, money or football or uh, uh, a skirt or, or whatever it is you're chasing after, then that becomes a God to you, right? And it gets in the place of God. And so the, the very first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And what that does is it reflects the character of God. The Bible says God is a jealous God. It means he doesn't accept any substitute. And we shouldn't either. He's a jealous God. We also have other laws that not only relate to God, but relate to other people. For example, uh, you shall not murder, right? Which is one of the Ten Commandments. Because the law can further be summarized, the moral law can further be summarized in two laws. And do you know what those are? Jesus said they're the greatest commandments. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself, right? And you could summarize that as love God and love your neighbor, okay? Love God, love your neighbor. Now that really narrows it down. So the law is really about love. It's really about love. Well, what are all these 600 laws that are in the Bible, in the first five books of the Bible? Well, they can be divided into two different groups. Some of those laws have to do with, our, with uh, the Jewish temple, they have to do with the worship of God's people in that period of history. And so it's actually over here in this period of history. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the people related to God, and they had to follow these laws for when they went into the temple. And God said, be holy as I am holy. And so there are all these laws about holiness. There are all these laws about having, having external things that reflect the goodness and the holiness of God. So, for example, they had laws about what kinds of foods you could eat and what kind of foods you couldn't eat. And they, and they were very specific. And there's laws that say you can't eat a, a pig. Okay, you, No bacon, no barbecue, right? And so that was a law for the Old Testament temple worship. Now, those laws have been fulfilled in Jesus. So that now, when we go back and read the Old Testament, we read those laws and we say, oh, should I not be eating bacon? Did I sin against God by eating bacon this morning? And the answer for that is no. Why? Because those laws that are about worship in the temple no longer have a direct effect on us today. They no longer have a direct effect on us today. But there is something we can learn from them. Well, what can we learn? God is holy. God is holy, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so even though there is no temple today, we have, the, the, we have become the temple, right? God says now the church is the temple of God. And so now we walk in holiness, 
not externally by, by food and external things, but by hearts that are transformed by the Holy Spirit that live a life of love and kindness, right? Do you see how that works? So when you go back and read the Old Testament and you read a law that seems like, wait a minute, you have to understand the genre. You have to understand this is a law related to the temple and the worship of God's people in the temple. Now, some of the other laws in the Old Testament of those 613 laws, some of them are not about worship, but they're about society. And so you have laws that are related to Israel, not as a worshiping people, but as a nation. And so in history, in history, Israel was a nation. They had laws about building buildings. They had laws about uh, labor, labor laws. They had laws about uh, caring for strangers, for the outcast, for the sojourner, for the immigrant. They had laws about justice. And so a lot of those laws, when we read them, they feel very familiar to us because many of our laws today in our society are based on some of those laws. Right? There's a law, for example, that says if you build, uh, if you build a house, you have to put a, a little gate around the outside of your house. And the reason is you put a gate around the, uh, uh, up, up on your roof because in those days people would get up on the roof and if you had visitors over or small children, you didn't want your neighbor falling off the edge of your house and breaking their leg. And so God actually put that in the law that you would build a gate around the side of your house. Was it for? So that I might love my neighbor. So a lot of the laws related to society were just an application of the moral law, which was to love your neighbor as yourself. All right, now I know I'm throwing a lot at you, okay? But when we get to the law, we need to remember three things. Is it moral law? Is it the Ten Commandments? Is it sort of the principle of God's character? Is it a law related to worship in the temple? which now has been fulfilled in Christ? Or is it a law related to society and how Israelite society was working? Legal laws, civil laws, political laws. And all of those laws have now been fulfilled in Christ as well. And so the religious laws, the, moral, the uh, laws about the temple, the laws about society, they've all been fulfilled in Christ. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, those are still completely applicable today because they are reflecting the character of God. Does that make sense? And look, that can be confusing. I know it can. And people can look at the Old Testament and say, well, what's this law about such and such and such? And why aren't we doing that today? Why aren't we requiring women to go around wearing a head covering? And why aren't we, why aren't we eating pork? And, and, you, and people will try to discredit the Bible, but it's because they don't understand the genre. They're trying to recite a recipe, all right? And so we have to be careful about that. We have to understand it. That's the law. Probably the longest point, okay? The second one is narrative. Narrative is a story. It's straightforward. It's a straightforward story of what happened. It's history. And so and this is the, the, the most fun part of the Bible to read, right? It's what we all grew up hearing in, uh, in, in, from our grandmother as she read the Bible to us, right? It's, it, it's, it's, it's hearing the stories about David and Goliath. It's, it's hearing the stories about uh, Daniel and the lion's den. It's hearing the stories about Jesus walking with his disciples and, uh, and, and, and raising Lazarus from the grave, right? These are the narrative sections of the Bible. 
And we have to understand that we don't actually have everything that was ever written, or we don't have everything that ever happened in the history of the people of Israel, or even in the life of Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 21, verse 25, the Apostle John says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so when we read the narrative of the Scripture, we need to remember that the the stories that are told are there for a purpose. The stories that are left out were left out for a purpose. God doesn't tell us everything that happened. doesn't tell us everything that happened at creation. doesn't tell us everything that happened in the life of Jesus. But what does God give us? God gives us what we need to know for salvation and for godliness. For our life, he gives us everything that we need to know. And so as we read these stories, they teach us something, right? They teach us something by example. We can learn from the either good example or the bad example, right, of the people who we read about. We can read about what God is doing as he's bringing redemption through this redemptive history, all the way from creation through man's failure into the kingdom of Israel, into the exile, into the restoration, into the life of Christ, and into the church which we're now living in now. And so as we read stories, as we read narrative, I want to give us, I want to give you one caution. And one caution is that we need to remember that we're reading a story, that we're reading a narrative. We're not necessarily reading something that we are supposed to do. So, so for example, let me, give you, let me give you an example. If you're reading uh, in 1 Kings about Solomon, and you're reading along, and you notice that Solomon marries this one woman, and then he marries another woman, and then he marries another woman, and he marries another woman, and he has all these wives. It would be easy for someone, if that's all they read, to look at the Bible and say, well, God must approve of polygamy, right? Because I'm reading about it right here in the Bible. It's right here in the Bible, polygamy, right? And this is Solomon. He's the man, right? He's the king, and he's polygamous, And so it would be easy for us to read stories in the Bible, narratives in the Bible, and to interpret them as if they are telling us what we need to do rather than recording a record of what happened. And so as we read the narrative, as we read the narrative, we need to understand the genre is not uh, prescribing our behavior. It is simply describing what happened. Does that help? So as you read it, you don't, you don't take the example and you say, well, that's, that's what I got to do, right? You, it's not prescribing what you should do. It's simply describing what happened. And this is why I think Peter says that some people have taken the Scripture and have twisted it to their own destruction. Because let's, think, because let's be honest. If you follow the path of polygamy, it will lead to your destruction. If you follow the path of Uh, that some of the other, uh, you know, forefathers in the Old Testament took, it will lead to destruction. And so we need to be careful to understand the genre. It's narrative. It's a story. Let's interpret it for what it is, okay? So number one is law. Number two is narrative. Number three is poetry. 
poetry. What is poetry? Poetry expresses ideas, sometimes complex ideas, with vivid imagery, with creative expression, right? I know you're a poet, right? You like to write poetry. I'm looking at Sean. Um, Some of y'all didn't know Sean was a poet, but he's a poet. Um, Am I right? He's like, yeah, a little bit. Vivid imagery, you got creative expression, figurative language. And so when you read the poems or you read the wisdom literature, you need to come to it understanding that it is not taken literally. If it's poetry, you don't take it literally. For example, Song of Solomon, one of my favorite books, chapter 4, verse 2. The the groom is describing his bride, and here's what he has to say. (laughs) Y'all ready? Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Coming up from the washing, each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Now, how many of you ladies would just swoon over that? Uh, your, your, your teeth are like a flock of sheep. <laughs> right? That's weird. What is he saying? He's saying they're white, right? They're shiny. They're, 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 right? He's, making a, he's using a metaphor to describe something poetically. Now, in, that, in our culture, that, that metaphor does not work, right? Um, we might use some other metaphor, which I'm not even going to attempt to do. But, um, but in their culture, that did work. It was poetry, right? It was a love poem, and she was, she was loving it, okay? Loving it. Flock of sheep. Oh. <laughs> it's like, this is, this is poetry, and one thing, as we read poetry, in, especially in the Old Testament, we need to realize that it's not like our poetry. It doesn't have a meter. It doesn't have rhyme scheme. And that can be frustrating when we read poetry because we're thinking, where's the rhyme? Like, I don't feel the rhythm. And that's because it wasn't written with the same kinds of rhythm or rhyme that we're used to in our culture. But one of the things that I'll tell you, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is that Hebrew poetry uses something called parallelism. And what it will do is it will give you a statement, and then the next statement might seem at first like it has nothing to do with the one right before it. But when you reflect on it, when you consider it, when you pray over it, (laughs) when you understand it more deeply, then suddenly the meaning jumps out at you. And, And some of these are very easy to see, right? I'll give you one example that's easy. So in Psalm 23, which we started working through last week, in Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3, listen to the parallelism of these three lines. Okay, there's three lines. Here it is. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And so what, what, the poem, what the poet is doing is, what David the poet is doing, is he's taking a situation, he's describing green pastures. He's describing still waters. And then he says, and here's what I mean, he restores my soul. And so you get this vivid image of, of pastures and uh, a, a still water. And then you see, oh, it's about God's giving me peace. God's giving me rest. And so the poetry, if you, if you look at it as it was written in the genre, parallelism, it can just really open up the word for you, okay, as you're reading this genre of poetry. We do need to be careful. Don't read poetry as if it were story or if it were law. And, and because you'll read it and you'll be like, well, 
I mean, especially, look, Revelation is full of poetry, okay? It's full of poetry. And, 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 and so if you read Revelation literally and not in the genre that it's written as poetry, then you'll, you'll be looking for, you know, literal uh, bowls to be poured out on the earth, <laughs> right? It's not what it's about. It's, it's poetry. It's, it's, it's um, figurative language. And so it's, that's why certain things are hard to understand because we come at them as if they were just a story or just a narrative, but really, it's poetry. Y'all get that? Okay, the next one is prophecy. Okay, and you're like, prophecy's hard. Okay, and I know it is, but it's really not. And here's why. Because prophecy is not about predicting the future like a fortune teller. We think of prophecy as, as going to Madame bell or whatever. Uh, what's a good fortune teller name? Madam Wanda. <laughs> no offense to any Madam Wandas out there. But that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is not going into a crystal ball. It's not going in and, and just getting this sort of vision of the future necessarily. That is not what biblical prophecy is. That's what modern day prophecy is. That's what people do on the streets. But don't impose modern ideas of prophecy on the Bible, okay? It's really important. Prophets were the mouthpiece of God. That is what a prophet was. A prophet was a mouthpiece of God. What does that mean? It means that they boldly proclaimed God's will and his word to his people. And all of the prophets, as we've listed them down here, and I've tried to put them in the, where they fell, you know, in the different time frame, and, the, and now I can't remember, the exile, the return, and during the kingdom. These prophets were actually speaking the truth of God to the people of God. And so when you read through the prophets, so much of it, is, it sounds harsh because they're, bringing the God, they're speaking God's judgment and they're saying, look, if you don't turn from your evil ways, God is going to bring his discipline. He's going to bring his judgment upon you. And so the prophets were, think of them as prosecutors in a courtroom. And the prophets were coming in to bring the case against the people and to present the case against the people. These were not popular uh, uh, YouTubers. Okay, these were not, they did not have TikTok accounts. Why? Because people hated them. Because they were speaking the truth. And they were doing it in love. They were. <laughs> they were. But they were hated. They were abused. They were despised. Uh, it was nothing sexy about being a prophet. And the prophets spoke the truth of God. And they used vivid language. They used... Uh, word pictures. Listen to this. This is from Isaiah chapter 1 verse 21, the prophet Isaiah speaking to Judah. Where's Isaiah? Down there, right? Somewhere on this list? Toward the bottom, I think? Yeah. Isaiah speaking to the kings. Okay, the kings of Judah. And, and here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, y'all got to feel this. And I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get my slides together today. But he says, how, faith, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice 
Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. You think they were popular? No. He's saying how the faithful city, Jerusalem, has become a whore, traded her faithful husband for false gods. That's what he's saying. You have forsaken worshiping the Lord your God, and you have done whatever you want to do. You've gone off and done your own thing. That is the message of the prophets. Okay, it is not about telling you what you should eat for dinner tonight. That is not prophecy. It wasn't in the Old Testament and it wasn't in the New Testament. Prophecy is about boldly declaring the word of God. It's so important for us to understand. Now, did they foretell some things? Yes, they did. There's certainly some things that the prophets spoke about what would come to pass. But their primary mission was to boldly proclaim the word of God. But here's the thing, it wasn't all bad. Because not only were the prophets the prosecutors, they were also the defenders. They were also the public defenders who would come between God and his people and say something like this, Isaiah, same prophet, just a few chapters later in chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mm. Now that, maybe that would be on YouTube, right? <laughs> the good stuff. And so, see, the, the prophets were giving both the warning about judgment and, and reminding people of how they have fallen short of God's glory. And they're speaking the hope of salvation. And they're reminding the people to turn from their sin, turn back to God. He will welcome you in his arms. He will rebuild. He will restore. He will make, he, will, he may send you in, wait, where is it? He may send you into exile but he will bring you back into the land, right? You have completely failed to do what you're supposed to do, but he will send a savior. That's the message of the prophets. And so as we approach prophecy, we need to bear that in mind, that they're, they're speaking the word of God. They're boldly proclaiming the word of God, words of judgment and words of grace. The last category, the last genre that we'll talk about today, are the letters of the Bible. And you may think of the letters primarily as the New Testament letters, but there are letters in the Old Testament too. There's a letter, a really famous letter in, uh, in Jeremiah, one of the prophets, Jeremiah chapter 29, um, a, a letter there written to the exiles when they were down in exile. And so the letters are just that. They're letters. <laughs> they were written to teach something to God's people where they are. And so the letters, uh, mainly written to the New Testament church, contain the teaching of the apostles. So the letters of the New Testament are essentially our record of the teaching of the apostles, of the official witnesses that Jesus set apart to be his witnesses. Those apostles who um, preached and teached and planted churches and duplicated themselves and spread the word to the whole world. 
And so one of the things that I love about the letters is that they're kind of easy to read for us. They're kinda, you know, like if you're going to do a Bible study, you're probably going to do it on Ephesians. Or you're going to do it on, you know, 1 John. Because, it's, it's, because we are actually the target audience directly for those books. Because we are the church, right? And so we still, see, we live in this era of the New Testament church. And so that's why when you read the letters, it, it seems like it's easier to understand, easier to get, easier to read, because it was written really to the church. And so where we have to understand much of the history about the Old Testament, the New Testament, especially the letters, feel easier to understand, feel easier to get. Does that make sense? Because they were written to the church, and we are the church. And so as you read the letters of the New Testament, remember that they are written to teach us, written to teach us something about the gospel, written to teach us something about pointing back to Christ and what Christ has done to fulfill uh, all that God requires of humanity. Jesus fulfilled it. He went to the cross. He was put in a grave. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. That is the testimony of the letters of the New Testament. And, and they all are just working it out. What does that mean for us? <laughs> and and, and one, thing, one thing in the letters I love, and it's, an, it's part of the inspiration for this church, is in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is writing, and he's writing to a, a, a blended community. In, in other words, there, there's people from all different ethnicities in this community. And he says, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And he says, therefore, because of Jesus, you're to live together in harmony, in Christ. He is your peace. Jesus is your peace. As part of the inspiration for this church, because we live in a divided community. But Jesus says the dividing wall has been torn down. And so that's a word for us. It's a word for us, and it's hard, and we got to live it. And it's not easy, but it, but it is what God's called us to. And it's what we're going to talk about after church this morning. So stick around for the family meeting. All right, I know that was a lot. We got law, we got uh, narrative, we got poetry, we got prophecy, and we got letters. I want to just encourage you to be familiar with these genres as you're reading the scripture. Ask yourself as you're making observations, what kind of writing is this? Is this a letter? Is this law? Is this poetry? And then as you're reading it, rem remember the words of Peter. Peter said the whole point of Bible study is that you would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so quickly, I just want to demonstrate for you how that might work. To grow in the knowledge of the grace and the, to grow in the, grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ through each of these five genres. Remember how my wife uh, wrote me this lovely poem, but she didn't write me the poem, right? She shared a recipe with me and cooked a cake, which actually she did cook a cake yesterday um, for Isaiah's birthday. <laughs> and we have to get the genre right. God gives us his law. And in the law, we realize that God's standard is so high. God says, be holy as I am holy. And we know that none of us can reach that standard. And so the law drives us to Christ. The law drives us to say, Lord, I can't do it. 
I need a savior. I need someone to, to be obedient for me. That is what Christ has done for us in his life. And what about the narrative, the story of the Old Testament of, of creation and of the fall and of the struggle that people had and of the call of Abraham and God's promise that he would raise up the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And that as, as, as the story continues, we see men rise and fall. We see leaders rise and fall until Jesus comes. In the fullness of time, God sends his son. And he tells us that story through the narratives of Scripture. The poetry of Scripture, God paints a beautiful picture of his love for his people. And I mentioned earlier the Song of Solomon. That is about the love of a husband for his wife, but it's also about the love of God for his people, for his church. It's about this passion that God has for you that can only be described as romantic passion. <laughs> and that should make us feel a little uncomfortable and also a little uh, or extremely loved that God would paint a picture for us through poetry like that of his love for us. Throughout the prophets, we read about our constant failure to love God the constant threat of judgment that hangs over our lives, that sometimes we feel, right? When we walk into this room, we feel the weight of judgment. Oh God, I have not done what I was supposed to do. And the prophets remind us of his judgment, but they also remind us of the one who would come to demonstrate and to make a way for us to know God's grace. The Lord Jesus, and that's what the prophets do in the letters. The letters point us back the letters point us back and they, and they tell us about faith and they tell us about what we can do to, to be brought into God's family, what we can do to experience reconciliation with God by his grace, through the work of Jesus on the cross, by his blood, that we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus through all the genres of scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message today. Lord, thank you for uh, giving us your word. Lord, thank you for a little more understanding of how to read it today. And Lord, I pray that we would take these things and apply them as we open the word, that you would give us um, insight into what kind of literature we're reading, and that that would open up to us uh, what you're teaching us, what you're telling us about yourself and about us and about our need for rescue. Lord, I pray that you would um, encourage each, each person here to open their Bibles, to read and to consider what it is that you're saying to your church, what it is that you're telling us. And so, Lord, um, help us to each take that step to actually go to the Word, to read it for ourselves. Give us understanding. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.